Kia ora koutou. welcome back to Aotearoa Unearthed. This is our second episode with Dr Kurt Bennett on maritime archaeology. And in this episode we're looking particularly at a citizen science project he was involved in. Researching, rediscovering, sharing information about the HMS Buffalo Wreck in Mercury Bay, Fitianga. Kurt and his colleagues worked with divers, school children, community members, the local museum, to teach people about the wreck, to discover new information and to really draw the community together to understand what was so special about this wreck and the story that they had in the bay right outside their front doorsteps. Unsurprisingly, the project won the NZAA's Public Archaeology Award for 2022. Hello again, Kurt. Uh, nice to talk to you again. I'm really looking forward to doing this episode on the HMS Buffalo. It's a great story. To start with, could you tell me how you first came across the HMS Buffalo wreck and where the idea came from to do a project on it? Yeah, so the HMS Buffalo, I guess I've had some interest in it for a, a few years now. I formed part of my PhD research. And based on that, I then contacted the Mercury Bay Museum and its manager, Rebecca Cox, asking if I could come and have a look at their timber collection. Things that have been picked up off the beach over the years or salvaged from the wreck site or people have donated. But then from there, I sort of kept an interest in the wreck site. I went back and thought, just take a look at it, go for a dive. So this is 2018. found that it was pretty much scoured out of all sand. And this is in comparison to a 1986 maritime archaeological excavation that was conducted by some maritime archaeologists from South Australia. They actually had to probe through the sea floor and also excavate down through the sand to find the wreck. Whereas here was I swimming around and it was completely exposed. So the beauty of this through my mind is that all the hard work has been done because Mother Nature's gone and excavated it for me and I don't actually have to apply for any permits to do that. Based on that, it presented some real opportunity to um, record the site and understand it better. And I'm swimming around, <laughs> getting all these ideas in my mind and get out of the water and start chatting to Rebecca from the museum. And we start like, oh, it'd be great if we could do a project. Another year went by and the stars sort of aligned. We had another maritime archaeologist, Matt Gainsford. He bumped into Rebecca Cox at the museum and started chatting. Next thing, we're all meeting, discussing this idea. We've got a shipwreck completely exposed, prime for research, prime for survey. And out of that, we developed the HMS Buffalo Re-Examination Project with a real focus of including community, not necessarily directed academic or professional survey as such, but it's more about training locals, getting people involved. And I realise we've been a bit remiss. We've just assumed that everyone knows what the HMS Buffalo is and where it is. So can you tell me the story of this ship and where exactly it wrecked and how? Yeah, I'll try and keep it short because as with ships, they're movable objects. So they, they tend to connect many places over many years and have lots of individual interesting stories. But with the HMS Buffalo, built in 1813 in India, and shortly after launching, bought by the British Admiralty. So it served as a store ship in the Napoleonic Wars. It later sailed to places like Bermuda, Halifax, Nova Scotia, Barbados, Antigua, Jamaica, Malta and Gibraltar. And leading up until about well, 1830, that's when it was repurposed as a quarantine ship. So what was a quarantine ship? How did that work? 
it actually sat in the mouth of the River Thames and it was a stop point for cargo coming in. Imported goods, they'll go aboard the HMS Buffalo, sit there, hopefully any diseases would just naturally die off before being released into the local market. But like we sort of have here, they gas our containers and things like that for pests. So an earlier version of that. And so in 1833, it was recommissioned as a ship to start expansion into the South Pacific with Australia and New Zealand. The ship's accommodation, I wouldn't say got upgraded, but it got reconfigured to a transport women convicts to New South Wales. That's interesting. And it would create this journey or this route that it would sail out to Australia, deliver its people, and then sail via New Zealand, picking up kauri spars and timber for the Admiralty. You're not returning on an empty ship trying to make it worthwhile sailing this far. I'll just add a little tidbit here, which is quite interesting. The ship is noted to have carried a suggested national flag design for New Zealand on one of these voyages coming to New Zealand. However, it was later rejected by James Busby in favour for the United Tribes flag. Do you know what the flag was, what it looked like? No, I haven't been able to find the design for it. The next commissioning of the ship happened in 1836. And this is where it probably got slightly upgraded in terms of accommodation because it actually transported immigrants. So people were wanting (laughs) to travel to South Australia. South Australia was declared in 1836. And then it also participated in the Canadian Rebellion around that time as well. So it transported political prisoners from Canada to Australia, to New South Wales. There's a great documentary that's just been released called Land of a Thousand Sorrows by a Canadian documentary maker. Skip forward to 1840 and it was sailing off the coast of the Coromandel where a storm was starting to brew. So Captain Thomas Wood, he decided to take shelter in Mercury Bay, which is just off Fitianga on the Coromandel. And there's an anchorage there well known to sailors back in the time and even today called Cook's Anchorage. So that's where Cook spent his time in the bay when he was travelling around New Zealand. So that was always marked on navigational charts. He parked up around that anchorage thinking he'll ride up the storm in the bay. Unfortunately, it didn't go as planned. The storm itself was described, this is from the logbook, described as hurricane strength. And it's not like you've got an engine you can just power on and ride it out. You're really at the mercy of the weather. So it must have been a big enough gale that the ship's anchors broke loose and it basically just bounced around the bay, hitting the rocks as it got pushed in further and further into the beach. So it lost its rudder. Apparently there's a big hole that got smashed out of the stern. And fortunately, the captain managed to get it into what they call the stream, so the entrance into the Fitiang Harbour there by the jetty and ferry landing, and just nose it in and set another anchor, hoping that they could just ride it out in the lee of the cliff face. But he got into a bit of trouble there, and the anchor got loose. The boat's now bouncing around. Managed to drive it ashore, the sails that they had left. The wind kind of pushed them up onto the beach, and that's where it rests today. So it's about 50 metres from shore. There's the main toilet block along the shoreline, Buffalo Beach, which is named after the shipwreck. It's about three metres of water, yeah. so you can easily get out to it. And did the people escape or did anyone die? Uh, Two, unfortunately, drowned. 
it's so close to shore so you can imagine people on shore looking back and being helpless so most of them got ashore they set up a survivors camp and also they were helped by Nati Hay the story goes that one of the iwi swam out actually to the ship and secured a rope as like a guide to get people ashore yeah pretty tragic but amazing story I think I've heard you talk about this before, but it is amazing how because ships move and last for a long time, they are just involved in so many different elements of history. So now we're going to go a bit more in depth about the Citizen Science Project and how you involved the community. Perhaps we'll start with the diving community. How did you get them involved? For the diving community, we contacted various dive shops. Fortunately, we were very lucky to have Dive Zone on board with us. So they've got a good network and also supplied all the gear for us. Yeah, sent out basically just a call to dive groups, dive shops, dive clubs, the maritime archaeology community. And so we had people come mostly from the local area, as well as Auckland and as far as Kapiti Coast. So how many divers did you have? Uh, we had 12 in the end come through and it was just for a weekend. We just planned two days of survey so something very quick, something easy, and something that would be achievable. Yeah, so we had 12 divers, which actually worked out really well because the way we structured the service, we gave each pair a quadrant. So we divided it up into three 10-metre-long areas on either side of the vessel. We ran a baseline down the middle and then equal 10-metre lengths because the keel, fortunately, is around 30 metres. How do you think the divers found it? Did they give you feedback afterwards? Yeah, yeah. We definitely encourage feedback as well for future projects. We need to know how we can improve too by involving the community. Pleased to say we all have got really positive feedback. Everyone really enjoyed learning something new because a lot of them hadn't actually done, say, a maritime archaeological survey before and actually interacted with a shipwreck in that way. Some were surprised because when we talk about a shipwreck underwater, we almost envision you can swim in and around it and sometimes even got the sails still flapping in the tide, you know, that kind of thing, sort of romanticised, but it's not. <laughs> the shipwreck site itself is relatively flat in what's left of it, basically from the keel to the turn of the bilge where the hull curves up vertically along the wall face. This is the reality, and I think for them that was important yeah not all shipwrecks are the ones that you read in the books yeah it's not all pirates of the caribbean or i don't know <laughs> no no exactly <laughs> and what did you find and manage to take note of and document yeah so for the first time we've now got a site plan that covers the full length of the keel so i mentioned earlier the excavation by the south australian maritime archaeologists the fact that they had to excavate down meant they were very restricted in time. So what they would do is then plan their excavation on certain areas that they wanted to explore. Say a one by two metre trench down and excavate that. Whereas we had the entire wreck uncovered. So it meant that we could actually look and record a lot more than what they did. Now we've added to that and we understand the site so much better. It wasn't just planking on the inner and outer sides. We've got sheathing, understanding sort of its anti-fouling technologies. We had iron knees in there, the types of fasteners used. So we're just building up a much more detailed picture of how the ship was constructed. Mm. And tell me about the wider community support, because I know you had all sorts of businesses help you out in various ways. Yeah, we're so lucky. 
Fortunately, we applied for the AIMA scholarship. They do an annual scholarship every year for research. And that sort of kicked us off and started to plan the survey. And then from there, we engaged with local communities. They all really jumped on it. And bear in mind too, this is during the pandemic. So businesses were struggling too. So it's incredible they actually were willing to have a helping hand. So we had a local cafe do morning tea for the divers. Things like that goes such a long way for a project like this. We had the local supermarket give us fruit and water for the divers. What else was there? Actually, a local real estate agent just walk in, just say, yeah, here's some money. Just love what you're doing. So, yeah, we had really great community support and it was so good to see because ultimately this project is for them. They've got the shipwreck in their backyard and what we're doing will only enhance their understanding and appreciation of the site. So for our show and tell section, I'm wondering if you can tell us what you did with the kids with the educational programs, because when I heard what you did, it was just so amazing. So yeah, tell us what you came up with. Yeah, I think this is one of my highlights, really. The second half of the project was engaging with the community, and the majority of that was with the school children from local schools. That 8 to 10, 11 year bracket. First, we did education program, which got them down to the beach. So a nice field trip. Everyone wants to get out of school, get them down by the beach. And in front of the shipwreck on the shoreline, there had panels set up. We had artifacts from the museum that they could touch and interact with. And then we had a worksheet, but the worksheets were all themed. So they would split off into groups and one would be, say, the archaeologist, one the historians, one a collection manager. So they all had different questions. It was like an inquiry-themed program. So encourage them to go out, read what was on the panels, and then from that, take out the information that they needed. And they would all regroup and would all speak to a different theme. It was like a sharing exercise. And what was really cool about that day, not a lot of them knew where the shipwreck was. would be sitting on the shoreline and a few questions would be, oh, where is the shipwreck? And we'd say, it's just out there where the yellow boy is. You hear this, oh, whoa, oh, it's just there. And, and so I've heard recently, parents have gone to the museum and say, my son or daughter said, did you know the shipwreck's just out there? So we're getting this information relay back through the families now, which is really cool. And then the teachers loved it so much, they're like, when's the next one? <laughs> and so I'm like, oh gosh, we better think up something now, because we actually only intended to do that first session. But we were so hyped by ourselves we were like oh, let's do another one I was doing my PhD with another guy at the time from Spain and he was running a similar project up in the Mediterranean and he showed me this really cool education program where he got the school kids sort of donning fake scuba tanks and masks and had to go out and explore the shipwreck in like a hall floor scenario so I mentioned that to Rebecca and yeah, we just love the idea of doing that. So bringing the shipwreck to these kids and they could actually pretend to be maritime archaeologists. So we developed this program. We, again, got the community involved. Dive Zone donated some old dive masks for the kids. We had soda bottles painted up as makeshift scuba tanks, bright yellow, which was really cool. And so the idea was create a scenario that they experienced the limitations of working underwater. So get them into groups, they had to do a dive plan, we had a shipwreck site spread out on the floor, we had knees, planking, a bell, an anchor. And so get them thinking about, okay, you've got limited time, 
underwater. What is it you're going to record? Why? How? How much time are you going to spend there? And then they'll go out individually. Couldn't talk because you can't talk underwater. <laughs> go out and record as much as you can in the time frame that you had. Can I just interrupt? How were they getting out and around on the floor? Oh, sorry, yes. So it'd be a grid would rope off an area, but to mimic diving underwater, you had to ride on a skateboard. So again, we had a community donate a couple of old skateboards to us. You can imagine these kids have got their dive masks on, scuba tank on, and then you're lying flat on a skateboard with your clipboard as your slate you're tucked in. So they're gliding around the floor. They've got to go quick. It was a game, but you're still trying to get that real sense of working underwater yeah so it's this tag team situation get out and then you come back you do your dive debrief as we do normally what you encountered and what you recorded they just loved it I bet they did that sounds so fun <laughs> and we also there was an option that if we sort of ran out of time we had another mask that was slightly blacked out so you could give that to the the kids to <laughs> so mimic um zero visibility underwater trying to work with that (laughs) and I know some of these kids after they did this program became a lot more knowledgeable about the shipwreck and then helped find timbers and things like that yeah they became more aware of maybe what a shipwreck timber was so they're able to identify things along the beach and so from that Rebecca at the museum would get calls from locals saying I think I found a piece down the beach and it's awesome it's really reinvigorated the community towards the shipwreck we've also been educating people when they find a piece to if they can take photos of it as you found it on the beach take a gps mark if you can or note where you found it we're actually starting to build up a little database now of where these bits are being found it helps in terms of understanding site formation of the wider area of the wreckage site, but also too, it might help understand coastal erosion currents within the bay. So if we've got a grouping of wreckage, why is that? And what's the plan going forward? What's happening with these artefacts that are found? Mercury Bay gets pummeled with easterly swells all the time. And so it happened last year, winter storm, and the shipwreck got hammered and we had a whole bunch of timbers get washed ashore so you had locals calling up the museum saying i found another piece and we sort of responded to that and got all the timbers back up to the museum again real community involvement and local council too got their little truck down someone with a a digger to help crane them off the beach because these things are massive they're three to five meters solid teak hardwood really heavy it was a real team effort to get them to the museum from an archaeology point of view we need to record them as soon as we can because we've got to record that contextual information that might be still preserved in the wood because as soon as the wood's removed from its maritime or marine environment it starts degrading there might be say inscriptions on that timber that there's really fine details that we as archaeologists are trained to look at and record by recording that then we retain it before it degrades The timber might dry out, it might warp or shrink, and so you do lose those finer details. We managed to get some funding for Matt and I to go on and record these. We've 3D scanned every timber. The scans are up online. They're freely available for people to have a look at. The report's been written up, and then from that we can recommend what timbers would actually be worth preserving. Because we've got to remember too, to go through that conservation process 
It's so expensive and time consuming. It would be years in the making. We've got to weigh up. So if we've got five planks, how significant is that to our wider knowledge of the ship construction of that period? And it's probably not, unless one of the planks might have an inscription or something that we just don't see normally. So we have ranked them. We've worked out, I think it's either three or four that are worth preserving. I believe they're actually being pulled out. They were in like a desalination pool in a sort of 50-50 salt and fresh water. And the idea was bringing that salt out of the timber. And then from there, we're slowly air drying them. And this is a wonder advice of a, a conservator who's worked with shipwrecked material before. It might be slow going, but it's just the way it works dealing with waterlogged timbers. And so I guess my final question is what next? Either for you, are you going to do another community science or archaeology project or what's next for the buffalo? Yeah, so the buffalo, it's never ending really. Now we've got the survey of the shipwreck site. We know that bits and pieces have been broken off around the bay. So we actually approached the New Zealand Navy last year, asking for them to come on board with us and use their marine geophysical survey equipment to survey the bay through some historical research with some awesome volunteers from the Mercury Bay Museum. We narrowed down some primary survey areas of where we think that the ship bounced around. And this is all based on their logs as well. So it is, I'd say, fairly accurate. And the idea is then we're trying to retrace its wrecking event to record wreckage that might have broken off. Because we've got to think this archaeological site isn't just the shipwreck. It is a wider picture of the bay. It's a movable object there. So we're working through the data at the moment. I should have added earlier that this is all volunteer. So we're doing this in our own time. This is why it's probably taking so long. It's out of passion that we're doing this. So it's not moving fast, but it is moving. So we've got the data now. The Navy did side scan and magnetometer surveys of our area. Once we've got targets to dive on, then we'll be doing another call out for some divers to get involved. I did mention earlier too, we've got the GERT training next February. So the idea there will be train up some local divers with some photogrammetry methodologies and hopefully someone might or like to adopt the HMS Buffalo wreck and then just do sort of ongoing monitoring once or twice a year. Go out, take a look at it and then upload your data to the GERT website. Mm. Oh, it's pretty amazing, Kurt. And I mean, I know what it's like when you have a passion for something and you keep working on it in your own time but it takes forever so keep up the good work (laughs) thank you yeah well I enjoy it that's the main thing cool well I didn't really have anything else except I had another question from a kid which was just have you ever been in danger while diving (laughs) (laughs) yeah uh no fortunately no I haven't oh good (laughs) yeah I'm proud to say that one Diving, what's perceived to be dangerous, but I don't think it is. We've got our checks, we do our training. Think of it like your WAF or your car that you would take your tanks in to be serviced once a year. So it's just maintaining your gear, being aware of your capabilities. So staying within your own training, being comfortable as well. I think that's the main thing underwater. I'll admit there's been times in my gut that I'll be like, actually, no, there's something not right here. So better to work on that instinct. But long story short, no, never been in danger. (laughs) (laughs) Cool. Well, thank you so much for your time, Kurt, for doing both these episodes. Hopefully getting them out could help with getting the news out there of that this type of archaeology exists and the amazing type of things that you can do through it.
Yeah, that'd be great. Thank you for listening to this 12th episode of Aotearoa Unearthed. This podcast is a joint production by Heritage New Zealand Pohiri Tonga and the New Zealand Archaeological Association. If you enjoyed it, take a listen to our back episodes or tell a friend that it's worth listening to. Ka kite and have a good day.